The story that inspired the Northmen does come from historical record. Kind of. It's complicated. Robert Eggers' movie The Northmen is based on an old Norse tale called Amleth. This story has also been used as inspiration for Hamlet and subsequently The Lion King. It's been around for thousands of years, and understandably so. It's a great story, complete with bloodshed, romance, seafaring, and everything else you'd want from an awesome tale. And I will tell the tale pretty much in full, but before we get to that, we will need some context. The Northman tells a pretty straightforward revenge story. A king is killed by his brother, and a slain king's son is on a quest for revenge. The film isn't entirely faithful to the story of Amleth, but most of the names and major plot points are retained from that tale. Eggers is not shy about linking his movie to the story of Amleth. In interviews, he's quite transparent, saying, I came across Amleth, which inspired Shakespeare's Hamlet, and realized this is perfect. So, working along Icelandic poet Sion, Eggers set out to bring Amleth to the big screen. No one is totally sure where the tale of Amleth comes from, but many people do credit Iceland. Despite being a tiny nation, Viking Age Icelanders actually published a whole lot of writing. Old Icelandic literature often features the word Amlodi. This is generally accepted to be a cognate of the word Amleth and is used to mean a fool. Throughout much of the story, Amleth portrays himself as a fool. So scholars believe that Amleth may have its roots in Iceland. Still though, this is just one of many theories and no one will probably ever know for sure. But the tale of Amleth was first published by a man named Saxo Grammaticus in 1208. Saxo was a Danish historian and author who was most known for his work Gesta Danorum, which translates roughly to A History of the Danes. This book contains a whole lot of stories, including Amleth. You may notice that Gesta Danorum is in Latin, not Norse. During the time, if a person wanted to write for a foreign audience, they produced work in Latin. It was the language of the church and of academics all across Europe, despite not being the language of the people. So only a handful of scholars could have read the book when it was published. But that was fine because Saxo was very much ambitious with his work. He wanted the Gesta Denorum to basically be the comprehensive history of the Danish people. It was not really meant for lay people, but rather for scholars and future generations. The Gesta Denorum was written as a chronicle. Chronicles generally have no plots or narrative structure. They are reference material. In fact, they're often just written as lists lists of historical events put into chronological order. Here's a year, and here's what happened in that year. But Saxo wanted his chronicle to be different. He wanted it to have some kind of story. So he pulled from all kinds of different sources to assemble the Gesta Denorum. He included huge amounts of stories told in the oral tradition. Stories like Amleth that could have been any degree of true or not true. He also pulled from ancient Norse runes written on wood and stones. His idea was to unify all of these disparate stories and legends into some sort of narrative. Now, it would be easy to say that, well, none of this is true and it's not actually history. There's some accuracy in that statement, but history always has narrative. That's just how it's recorded. Depending on who records any event, things are bound to change. The good guys and bad guys may switch around, for example. But history is always written from someone's point of view. In this chronicle, Saxo happens to be that point of view. So in compiling his chronicle, Saxo serves as something called a redactor. When we think of the term redactor, we probably think of inked over government documents. But in this sense, a redactor is basically a conduit for history. 
They edit or redact from a huge array of historical sources to compile something cohesive and understandable. For example, if you have two or more versions of the same story, which do you pick? Saxo is hoping to be the redactor for basically all of Danish history. This further muddies the idea of the Gesta Danorum being fact or fiction. To complicate things even more, Saxo also uses something called free indirect discourse in the Gesta Danorum. This is when a narrator tells you what a person is thinking or feeling without a direct quotation from that person. Saxo had no idea what these people were thinking or feeling throughout Danish history, so his own personal viewpoint comes through in this way too. Saxo glorifies Amleth's cunning and opportunism, making him into a hero. With another redactor though, Amleth may have been underhanded or cowardly. The idea of putting history into some type of story, intentionally or otherwise, is called narrativization. And the narrativization of history is not all bad. People don't tell their kids lists, they tell their kids stories. Before the information age, that was just how history was recorded. The past needed some kind of cultural relevance or something compelling to survive. Perhaps when Saxo was writing his chronicle, he may have realized this. However, for all his editorializing, the Gesta Danorum is today seen as an essential source for Scandinavian history. For example, it basically reads like a who's who of today's pop culture Viking canon. The book is one of the main sources for what scholars know about Ragnar Lothbrok. Fans of the Vikings TV show would also recognize appearances from Lagatha, Bjorn Ironside, and Ivar the Boneless. These people certainly existed in history, and we know that in part because of Saxo's writing. The book is also one of the oldest written records of regions like Estonia and Latvia. So ultimately, the history of the Danes isn't just true or not true. Instead, it moves fluidly between personal opinion, Norse legend, and historical record. Early in Norse history, King Rorik was ruling over Denmark from the capital at Lear. As the ruler of the most powerful kingdom in the region, it was Rorik's responsibility to appoint leaders. So he appointed two brothers, Orvandil and Fang, to co-rule the Jutland Peninsula. Soon thereafter, Orvandil slayed King Rorik's rival, King Cole of Norway. This earned Rorik's favor for Orvandil. As a reward, Rorik offered Orvandil his daughter Garutha's hand in marriage. Orvandil accepted and married Garutha. The two then gave birth to a son named Amleth. With time, Fang continued to grow jealous of Orvandil's increasing reputation and good fortune. Years went by and eventually blinded by jealousy, Fang killed his brother Orvandil and married Garutha. Orvandil's son Amleth was worried that Fang would see him as a threat and kill him next. So Amleth pretended to be a fool. He stopped washing himself and he rolled around in dirt. He spoke in nonsensical riddles, leading people, including Fang, to think that he was an imbecile. Once he had the townspeople convinced of this ruse, Amleth began making small javelins to eventually use to avenge his father. But the townspeople grew suspicious of his skill as a craftsman. Surely a simple idiot could not manage to make things. So they started to suspect that his simple demeanor was a lie. Some of the townspeople alerted Fang to these suspicions, and so Fang devised a test. He decided to tempt Amleth with a woman, any sane, intelligent man could not have resisted the allure of a beautiful woman. So one day, Fang's men led Amleth into the forest where the woman would lie in wait. But one of Fang's men was Amleth's foster brother from his childhood. This man warned Amleth of the plan. So Amleth got onto his horse backwards, acting like a fool. 
This made the horse panic and run away with Amleth still on its back. Deep in the woods, Amleth met the girl that Fang had hired. The two made love in the woods and Amleth convinced her to keep his plan a secret. After this, Fang came up with another plan. He decided to get Amleth alone with his mother Garutha. Fang believed that Amleth would let his ruse down and would not hesitate to speak plainly to his own mother. So Fang would have a man hidden in the room to overhear their conversation. Indeed, Fang got Amleth in a room with his mother alone, but by then Amleth was suspicious and believed Fang was eavesdropping on them. Amleth continued to act like a fool and he bounced up and down on a pile of straw. As he did so, he felt a large lump under the straw. Amleth drew his sword and buried it into the straw, killing Fang's man. He then cut the man's body up into pieces and fed him to the town's pigs. Of course, the man never returned to Fang, so later, Fang asked Amleth if he knew what happened. Amleth told him that the man fell into the sewer. This awoke suspicion in Fang, who now completely believed Amleth to be intelligent. But Fang knew that he could not just kill Amleth. If he did so, King Rorik of Denmark would have been furious. Amleth was the only son of the now-deceased Orvindal, who was always King Rorik's favorite leader. So Fang deported Amleth to Britain. He sent Amleth on a ship with two men and a wooden plank. This wooden plank was engraved with instructions for the King of Britain to kill Amleth. The instructions were engraved in Norse runes. At the time, common people, like the soldiers escorting Amleth, could not read runes. Amleth knew this, so he stole the plank during the journey and scraped off the top layer of wood. He re-engraved the plank to say that the king was to kill the two escorts rather than Amleth himself. Amleth also added that the king should grant his daughter's hand in marriage to a man of great judgment. When the three arrived in Britain, they were greeted by a grand feast. But at the feast, Amleth did not eat or drink anything. The king took notice of this. After the feast, when everyone had returned to their room, he sent spies to listen in on Amleth's conversation with his escorts. Amleth told them that the food and drink was tainted. He said there was a taste of iron in the alcohol and the stench of human flesh in the meat. The spy relayed Amleth's words to the king, who declared that Amleth was either a complete fool or an extraordinarily wise man of great judgment. The king investigated Amleth's claims, and to his surprise he found that the pigs had been eating from the carcass of a dead robber. He also found that the liquor was made with the water of a wild spring, and in that wild spring there lied old, rusty daggers. Impressed by Amleth's wisdom, the king agreed to let his daughter marry him. The king hanged Amleth's escorts, and Amleth married the king's daughter. Amleth spent a whole year with his wife, but he knew all the while that his destiny was to avenge his father. So he bid farewell to his wife and sailed back to his home of Jutland. He exchanged his clothes for rags and rolled in the mud to keep up his simpleton appearance. Upon arriving at Jutland, Amleth walked into his uncle's banquet hall and found everyone feasting. The men looked at Amleth like they'd seen a ghost. They had heard he died in Britain and the feast was a celebration of his death. Amleth began waving his sword around and talking nonsense like a fool. He pricked his own fingers with the sword and bystanders worried that he would hurt himself in his stupidity. So they nailed his sword into its scabbard to keep him safe. Amleth continued to play stupid and let the lords get completely drunk. Once they were drunk, he set fire to the hall, killing everyone inside. But Fang was not at the feast. Amleth found him sleeping in his room and switched Fang's sword with his own nailed shut weapon. 
Amleth awoke his uncle and told him that he'd killed everyone with the fire. He told Fang he had come for vengeance and revealed his whole plan. Fang tried to draw his sword, only to find, of course, it was nailed shut. Amleth struck him down easily. Amleth then gave an impassioned speech to the village. He reminded them about the greatness of his father and how he'd ruled justly with kindness while Fang had not. Amleth ensured the people that he had liberated them from a tyrant and told them of his years-long plan. Convinced and moved by Amleth's words, they elected him king. To celebrate his victory, Amleth had a shield made that was painted to depict the entire saga. He took this with him to Britain where he told the king that he had slain Fang. But the king of Britain and Fang had been close friends. So the king silently vowed to avenge Fang. The king then informed Amleth that his queen had died of illness, so he tasked Amleth with finding him a new bride. The king told Amleth there was a queen in Scotland that he desired, a queen named Hermutrud. Amleth traveled to Scotland with some of his men. Upon arriving, they made a camp in the forest to rest. Queen Hermutrud's scouts saw Amleth and his men, and she sent warriors to investigate. One of the warriors waited until nightfall and stole Amleth's shield while he slept. The warrior took it to Hermutrud, who saw the story depicted on the shield. She had heard the story before and she knew of Amleth's reputation. Hermutrud ordered her warrior to put the shield back, but as it turned out, Amleth had only been feigning asleep when it was stolen. So as the warrior tried to slide it back, Amleth sprung up and detained him. He took the warrior back to the queen. She told Amleth that she admired his resilience and that he was right to kill Fang. Hermutrud confessed that she did not wish to marry the king of Britain, but rather Amleth himself. So Amleth took her as a second bride and they traveled back to Britain. There he found that his first wife had given birth to a son. She told Amleth that she loved him still as a husband and that he should be weary of the vengeful king. The king then invited Amleth to a banquet. Amleth, suspicious now of the king's intentions, put chainmail on under his clothing and prepared 200 warriors for battle. As Amleth approached the banquet hall, the king hurled a javelin at him. It wounded him, but Amleth's chainmail kept him alive. Amleth's men, however, were slaughtered in battle. Knowing he had to rebuild his army, Amleth thought about a strategy. He decided to prop up his men's bodies on sticks, and he placed other dead bodies on horseback. Amleth readied this army of corpses and the images of the men terrified the king's forces. Amleth proceeded to defeat them in battle. Amleth chased down the king and killed him before returning to his own home in Jutland with his two wives. When he arrived in Jutland, Amleth discovered that King Rorik had died while he was away. Rorik's son Vieglik had taken the throne. He'd also taken Amleth's mother's wealth, saying that Amleth had usurped the throne and it was not actually her money. Amleth battled Vieglik and defeated him, but he showed mercy. He allowed Vieglik to flee the land. Years later, Vieglik returned with an army. Amleth did not want to leave Hermutrud widowed with a child, so he was hesitant about fighting. But Hermutrud promised that she would die alongside Amleth should he be slain. This convinced Amleth, who gathered his forces and prepared for battle. Amleth was killed in battle with Vieglik. Hermutrud was not true to her word. She offered to be Vieglik's spoils of war. If you've seen The Northmen, you will notice some parallels. But now that you've heard the story, it's pretty easy to say that The Northmen and Amleth are probably not true. Or at least they're so far removed from the events that inspired them 
that it's impossible to call them true stories. But maybe that doesn't matter at all, because true or not, stories are important. And I mean all stories, from Marvel's latest Avengers Bonanza to the ancient tale of Amleth. On a personal level, escapist fiction can provide, well, an escape. We've never been more inundated with information than we are today. A good story can be a refuge from this information overload, or whatever else you're going through in life. Getting lost in a story isn't always a bad thing. But to be more ambitious, storytelling can provide a fantastic bridge from culture to culture. It makes the world a smaller and more empathetic place. Indeed, there is an ever-increasing amount of brain science that supports the importance of storytelling. Yuri Hassan is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Recently, Yuri and his team monitored the brainwaves of two people one telling a story and the other listening. The team found that the listeners' brainwaves actually began to mirror the storytellers. Their brains basically synced up. Specifically, Yuri says, I'm trying to make your brain similar to mine in areas that really capture the meaning and the context of the world. Other researchers have witnessed that when listening to a story, brain networks that are involved in prediction and imagination begin to light up. This means that we are trying to see a situation from another person's point of view and thus figure out what they will do next. Of course, we could probably all use some practice seeing situations from other perspectives. We also carry stories with us through life. We think about them and tell other people about them. This exchange of information can influence our attitudes and even our behaviors. Professor of Communication Melanie Green spoke to NPR about this recently. If we identify strongly with a character and that character makes a decision, we will be more likely to consider that change ourselves. This can be applied to changing our own habits or even our perceptions. For example, unsolicited advice is pretty much awful. But if someone tells you a story about something similar to your experience, that can feel less like an attack and more like a worthwhile piece of information. Ultimately, The Northman is not based on a real story. But that's just fine. Because storytelling is important, and sometimes fiction can be just as powerful as the truth.